Welcome to Intangible Quarter, the podcast dedicated to the love and study of Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. Tonight, my guest is Mike Wiebe. Mike is a comedian and a musician in Riverboat Gamblers and Draculus. He's also informed me to tell you how handsome he is, but as this is a podcast, how handsome he is is up to you. Mike, thanks for coming. Great to be here. Your voice, though, is very handsome. Very, very handsome. Thank you. Thank, uh, thank you for uh, for being here, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And I'm going to start the show with the same question I ask every guest: um, How did Twilight Zone first come into your life? How old were you when you saw it? Where did you see it? What were your first impressions? I I cannot remember the first time. Um, I'm uh, I'm a, I'm 43 uh, now, so. Sometime in the 80s, it was definitely it was a show that was on, usually a Saturday after cartoons are over. And, uh, Interesting. We didn't, didn't grow up with cables. Usually a Saturday afternoon. There was a, there was a local affiliate. Uh, you grew up in Texas? I grew up in Texas. I grew up in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, a little town called Denton, Texas. And right. There was, I know uh, from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, they... Uh, also, Peter Weller went to school in uh, North Texas, and Joe Don Baker. And really, that's where the Mitchell list. himself, Mitchell, yeah, Mitchell Mittens, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, or the but the local affiliate they would have. There was some stuff that would run in the afternoon, and then they would have a, they would have uh, two movies. It was called Double Shock Theater, and it would be anything from all the Atomic Age scare stuff and Godzilla and stuff like that. But right before that, it was always one Twilight Zone episode, and I would watch that. But the big, the the thing that really, really wrapped me into Twilight Zone was every New Year's Day, that affiliate would have an all day marathon. Right. So, so it's funny because so, but you're still like prepubescent. Yeah. 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 Totally. Right. So you still like were a kid, right? Because people think of this as like horror, and they think of this as like late night, and it's very hard to explain to some people. Although apparently not my guests, but people I've met online. I mean, I grew up in New York. You grew up in Texas, but it was on during the day. It was yeah. definitely aimed at a bunch of kids. You were watching it after cartoons. Yes, for sure. For was sure. It a chiller theater down there too. Uh, it no, sounds like it was. I mean, it was the same concept. I think it was just you know I've read of ch- chiller theater, but we had Double Shock. There was no host, and then I think at some point they changed the name, but it was always the same. There was, we never had hosts down here for our like afternoon. Yeah, I never did stuff. too. Like I'd seen like Elvira and all that stuff, and I'm like, no, nah, I didn't have Elvira in my life. I like, heard about Elvira and, and and hosts like that secondhand. Yeah, that was not in my world. But what were your first impressions as a child? Did you like it? Did it scare you? I don't think it scared me, but I I loved it. There was a couple that disturbed me. Some of the episodes that end with that uh, hanging, unsettling feeling that uh, mm-hmm. would kind of carry through when you're when you're a kid and and you're too you're you're too young to know when like anything older than you is just old you know so anything that came out it, it could have been 1970s to you know i i knew that it was old cuz it was black and white so it could have been 1970s right. or it could have been 1922 like i have no you know, i have no concept of what came before me so i right. knew it was older so it was supposed to be safe you know it was black and white and it was on tv so i knew that i wasn't supposed to get too scared by it 
But when they would do an episode that ended on a not so much like a scare, like twenty thousand feet, but with the the William Shatner airplane one, like that had like some scares. But I was never like jarred by that. But it was more the ones that kind of ended with like you thinking about mortality that kind of messed with. So like what Midnight Sun or uh, yeah, or like the the Howling Man, the the idea that the devil's released out in the world and that it's just this exist where there's no the kind of a ambiguous ending where you kind of just are, are pondering it. And, and even as a kid kind of pondering, even if it's a, you know, kind of a basic story that kids can wrap their head around, there's still well, been that, a lot of stuff for you to kind of daydream about like, Ooh, what is, what does well, that before, mean? Before we get to the episode you, you picked, it's funny that you said about black and white being safe because another one of my uh, guests, uh, Reverend Elena Cobb, she grew up in a, I don't want to get the sect of Christianity wrong, but it was a it was a very uh, it was a very fundamentalist, uh, outspoken church group. So she grew up in a fairly restrictive home where she was not allowed to see a lot of uh, things. Uh, but her parents, foolishly, and I guess not knowing better, thought that the Twilight Zone was safe, a totally safe thing to do because it was black and white and and old and you know there's it's it's not like it's the most radical show in the world but it's in many ways there are things that are a little bit open-minded and subversive about uh the twilight zone so that was you reminded me of that irony but i would think that one of the shows that might have left a mark on you as a kid that had an unresolved uh creepy ending might be today's episode that you selected the dummy did you see it as a kid I'm. I remember seeing it in that block of New Year's New Year's Day. So it wasn't New Year's Eve. It was New Year's Day. They would play it all day. And my parents were are. Uh, they're from a German Mennonite background from uh, Nebraska, and they're not okay. like so religious that I wasn't allowed to like, uh, you know, watch color TV or anything like that. But they were also a little bit religious, and I don't. And I think they were of the mindset of like, ah, it's black and white. It's safe and. They kind of, they would kind of run me out of the out of the you know the TV the TV room, which was their bedroom. Uh, if I was watching too much, often, but if it was black and white, it somehow got a pass over like cartoons. If I was trying to watch cartoons all day or whatever, and uh, yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah, and uh, and and I don't think that they ever really because I think there are some uh, ideas that are posited in Twilight Zone episodes that if they were to really sit and think about them and put them in the terms of that time or definitely the terms of right now because they've unfortunately gotten a little Trumpy. But they would probably have more problems with it. But it was safe as a black and white. But I, I honestly, those New Year's days, my mom would make these, these kind of this – it's this thing called New Year's cookies that the German Mennonites make, and they're kind of like. Okay, now I'm just picturing your because I'm a racist moron asshole. I'm just picturing your mom like churning butter in the kitchen, no, like with the broom handle. It wasn't that bad, but uh, yeah. Okay, so we, New Year's Day whole, cookies. New Year's well, what, they're, what, they're what not cookies. Mennonite? They're um they're like these really dense donuts, and the tradition is you only make them on New Year's Day. So and they're really? really good. They're like these dense donuts, and they're covered. They're fried, and they're covered in sugar, and they have raisins in them. And I would just sit there all day and watch Twilight Zone the entire New Year's, and it's one of my absolute favorite memories of my childhood. Yeah. Oh my God. Now I, I want it. I they're so they're delicious, and with the Twilight Zone, which was just so made for me. And every year as I got older, I think I would like. I would. It was my tradition for me every year, and every year I'd start to grasp new concepts as I got older, 
and all the way into like junior high and high school when I started drinking and stuff. So I was, you know, at some point I started getting like hungover on New Year's Day. And it was this like other treat of like, I'm going to eat these delicious, horrible for you foods while I'm hungover and watch Twilight Zone. And continue. It does sound of, like good hangover food. It's so good, and it it was it's it, one of my favorite. But I remember being young and seeing the dummy at some point, and in those marathon marathons, sometimes you know they're throwing they're completely out of order. They're not like going yeah. like chronologically through seasons. So sometimes you'll get like a one of the goofier comedy episodes. Oh, it pissed me off so much. Yeah. Or the, because here's the thing, because you know, I I always wanted to see all of them. I've of course seen all of them now, but I would whenever Twilight Zone would come on, I'm like, I hope this is one I've never seen yeah. before. But although there was like, you know, I should know the exact number, but about ninety something uh, episodes, um, uh, it seemed like my syndicated affiliate. I also didn't have cable, and I'm about the same age as you. Like, picked the same thirty over and over again. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think as as great as I think technology is now, and I like the fact that I can, you know, easily flip on Netflix and rewatch the dummy before this at my leisure and stuff. There's something and it maybe it's nostalgia and eating uh New Year's cookies on New Year's Day, but there is something fun and about the idea of it's just this thing that comes on and I have no control over it. and maybe hopefully it's a good one there's an anticipation that it's a good one and oh yeah hoping that like you know maybe I'd have to like run out for an hour or do something I was growing up like oh I hope I don't miss like Eye of the Beholder or something because I want to see that one every year and just not knowing it's kind of like the radio and like it's great that I have Spotify and I have every single album that I could ever want at the touch of my fingers but there's something great about a great DJ on the radio when you're driving That's somewhere right. and you hear a song that you never would have played uh, on purpose, but there it is. But I remember the dummy, that was definitely one, especially if it came between a comedy where it's like, ooh, this is kind of unsettling. That that It was definitely one that left you with a, oh, I don't, that one's not happy at all. And it's also because it's, you know, Nobody really did anything wrong with it. I mean, maybe there's a lot of ambiguity. Ambigu- well, yeah, let's wait. Let's hold that for a second. Okay. Yeah, that is that is an interesting thing to, to talk about. But before that, let me do. Let me run down the stats, okay? okay. So the dummy was first aired May fourth, uh, nineteen sixty-two, uh, and even though Mike and I are old, we were not alive when that uh, that came out. It was a good still thirteen uh, years before you'd had your first. Uh, New Year's Day cookie. Uh, it was directed by Abner Bieberman, who also directed Number Twelve. Looks like you, another fantastic Twilight Zone. And it was written by Rod Serling. This is the thing that blows me away with Rod Serling, based on an unpublished short story by Lee Polk. And five characters in Search of an Exit, Exit, uh, maybe my favorite Twilight Zone about the toys in the Salvation yeah. Army bin was also based on an unpublished short story. So, A, holy shit, Rod Serling recognizing great stories. He didn't be like, oh, let me get that bestseller and I'll adapt it. Let me get my mitts on that. Or people aren't coming to him going like, oh, everyone's talking about this kid. You know, he's the big – he's going out and finding great stories and they make some of the best episodes. What an amazing judge of work. Uh, but it also stars uh, Cliff Robertson. Uh, oh, oh, and, 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 and you hear that sound? And, and you don't because I put it in post, but please play along, Mike. Do you, do you hear that sound? Oh, that sound. Someone in this episode 
And since I did the fake alarm way too early, it's pretty obvious that someone is, was in another Twilight Zone episode. Was it Cliff Robertson, the only name I've mentioned so far? I'm or some of the other yes. people? I'm going to guess, yes. yes, Cliff Robertson. It was Cliff Robertson. And do you know the other episode he was in? Oh, uh, it's one. It's another good one, actually. It's, he's a, is he a military guy or a... No, safe bet. That's like hedging your bets there, yeah, man. that's true. It's like, uh, is he someone uh, with someone, something to atone <laughs> yeah. for? Is it someone who needs a chance of redemption currently down in their luck? I want to say about 37, but looks 45. Yeah. Um, no, it's 100 years over the rim. It's the guy leading the trail westward, and his son's dying of a fever, and he suddenly goes to a time zone, and he's in like a 1960s diner. Oh, yeah. He brings yeah. back penicillin, and then it he's turns back- out his son is the one who lives to invent penicillin. Yeah, yeah. Good oh, episode. Yeah, I totally remember that. Um, and it's funny he said uh, that he, you know, he's 37 but looks 45. I, I'm still, I was watching on this dummy episode, I'm like, men look so different. As yeah. to their ages back then. But um, also, no, no, no. The casting on Twilight Zone was all wrong. I wrote about this on Cracked uh, like five years ago. Almost all his protagonists are 37, and they're almost always played by guys in their mid to late 40s. And I don't know why, and it's driving me up the fucking wall. You did get to see a lot of old guys just on TV a lot more often. I, I really appreciate that now as a becoming old guy. Um, yeah, Some of the you faces did. are so... There's just faces you get on the Twilight Zone of not leading men that I just appreciate so much. I know, right? Like Jack Klugman. I mean, Cliff oh, Robertson yeah. was a pretty good-looking guy, but he still wasn't quite like James Dean good-looking. Yeah. So, you know, but Cliff Robertson, J- uh, Jack Klugman, Burgess Meredith. Yeah. Like, and I always I was annoyed that Peter Falk was only in one because I thought Peter Falk was like a quintessential Twilight Zone actor. And what uh, Mark Dewidziak told me, the guy who wrote a book called um, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone, he told me that Anne Serling, who hopefully is also going to be on the show, the daughter of Rod Serling, also felt that uh, Peter Falk should have been in more Twilight Zones. In fact, he even, remi- she rem- he even reminded her of her father, Rod. Wow. But these, great, these great character actors. So I will so also, me- now, well, since we're talking about men and how they look, I think that there's also something in me that picked up on Rod Serling being a man, and that's how you're supposed to look like when you're a man when you grow yes. up. And that he could, because, and, and he was so, I still, like, kind of go to him as, like, the ultimate man because he's a smart, masculine dude, but he's also hyper smart, and he's always dressed cool. And, like, I was, I was even just, like, noticing, like, he's got, like, in this episode, in his intro, he's got, like, He's got his suit on, and he's smoking, smoking, of course. He's got a thin wedding ring, but he has this little gold chain around his, which is just that tip of the 60s coming in, where he's still dressed 50s, but he's got this, this little gold chain around, around his wrist. That's um, right. I'm so glad. You know, I got to tell you, there's only the, – first of all, I, I don't want to take anything away from my father. Uh, my father, it was and is a tremendous influence on my life. And let's just put him to a side for a second, but he deserves all the credit in the world. If we're talking about people in media, basically my whole definition for being a man from the earliest age injected in my DNA basically comes from some sort of cross between Rod Serling and Han Solo. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the archetypes that went in deep yeah. into the DNA and never left me. For sure. 
Yeah. So you know, I've, I've been looking for somebody to uh, to be as as creepily into Rod as me on the show so far, and no one has done it. Uh, David Itzkoff, I put it out there. He's like, oh, you know, he's a Rod fan, but he, I thought he was going to bring it home because I thought, well, you know, I'm a short New York Jew. You're, I don't know how tall he is, but I'm going to assume a short New York Jew. You must have loved Rod Serling as a short New York Jew. And he's like, well, was he Jewish? I never really thought about it. So <laughs> I never, I, I never really thought about that either. I just thought, well, I didn't think, about, I didn't know he was Jewish until like five years ago but but he does look like he could be you know somewhere in the gladstone family yeah uh, you're not shocked to find out he's jewish you might be shocked to find out he's not even five five though i am i did not know that in my head he's he's six four uh, and he knows he knew that too like he, yeah. he he's he, there's never any perspective he's always alone yeah um and and i've listened to speeches from him like from the 70s and like he's even commented upon it. He's like, "Well, the first thing you're probably thinking, <laughs> how short I am." Um, right, right. He, I, but it doesn't matter. He was a badass. He volunteered for the army. He wanted to kill Nazis. He boxed seventeen rounds. He was like, "Oh, he was he was seventeen and zero or sixteen and zero as a boxer." And then someone beat the living stuffing out of him, and then he, he gave up boxing. Oh man! But in fact, I, he was too short to even be in his core. But he was such a frenetic badass that they let him in well, he yeah. was a paratrooper and you know well and you were just back to like his twilight like his his work life like when you read about all the stuff he was doing because it was always everything i've read about him is he was doing like nine things at the same time and all of them well and not on on top of writing 90 episodes or you know 20 in a season or whatever he was still like reading <laughs> reading unpublished works in order to adapt them right like, and paying for them and crediting them when was there time for that? I don't know. And then, and then I don't know if it's season three or season four. CBS told him the show was canceled. He accepted a teaching post, and now I don't remember. I know later he taught at Ithaca College, but this was, was not like at Antioch the college. or something. Like I, oh, good. I good. Well, he went to Antioch, so now I don't know if it was Antioch or I'm confusing it. But um, but maybe you're right. But he accepted a teaching post, and then they said, "Oh no, 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 we do need the show." So he was still teaching. Yeah, writing scripts long distance. I mean, just amazing. So smoking cigarettes, and I I will say though, as as enamored as I am with Twilight Zone, the visage of uh, Twilight Zone Rod Serling, later in later years, I'm very very disturbed when I see him roll out in a night gallery, and he's got kind of long hair and a, like a weird like paisley shirt, and he's in color. Yeah. There's something about that that was always like, ah, I don't, I don't, can't, I can't do this. No, no, yeah, and the thing is, like, I guess it's all the smoking and all the sun worship because he was always tan and yeah. he was always smoking. But like, the guy died at fifty and he looked sixty. Like he was just so weathered. He was so grisly. I mean, that's just part of how masculine he was. But he looked much like everyone he cast for the character. Yeah, he looked older than his, even though he looked good and he was thin and fit. He looked older than than he was, so. But let's turn to the dummy. Yeah. Why? Well, first, in just a couple of sentences, and it's not hard to do in a couple of sentences. For anyone who would be listening to this podcast who's never seen this episode, which is hard to believe, what's the premise of the dummy? And there's no spoilers. You can just let it all hang out. What What is the dummy about? A ventriloquist has a dummy a ventriloquist dummy that is slowly coming to life and and starting to uh starting to affect his brain and ultimately doing nefarious things to to turn him into the other 
And I think to me, it was the first time I, I'm sure there's been somebody did something with an evil ventriloquist dummy before this, but it's the first thing I had ever seen with an evil ventriloquist dummy. And then there's been a million evil ventriloquist dummy stories afterwards and parodies. Magic, magic, the novel magic. Yeah. uh, The movie they made, Anthony Hopkins, is basically the same damn thing. Yeah, for sure. It's just an extended version of the same thing. Uh, yeah. Only, only, I guess, I think in Magic, he's just officially crazy. Like, there's no super, was there any supernatural? I don't know. Stuff? I haven't seen him since I was a kid. It's basically, and I, and I mix it up in my head with, like, uh, Michael Caine's The Hand, because yeah. even though it's totally different, it's basically the exact same movie. Yeah. <laughs> just re- reeks of 70s. And... For sure. Is Burgess Meredith Burgess in, Meredith in is Mag- in Magic. Burgess That's Meredith so is. weird that you Meredith have a quintessential actually... Twilight Zone actor in it. Uh, Burgess Meredith essentially is playing the Frank Sutton part of yeah. like, I'm your friend that's trying to get you to come to terms with this. Yeah, it's weird when he makes him try to catch a chicken. Oh wait, that's Rocky. Okay, <laughs> wait, I, got, I got I got my elder statements. Uh, Burgess Meredith he screams at him for being a bum for believing. <laughs> You've never been nothing. Uh, <laughs> well, I you know I named him Frank Sutton, and as uh, you know, somebody who was my third parent was easily the television. And I remember in w- seeing the dummy, I I knew Frank Sutton, of course, as Sergeant Carter from Gomer Pyle. Oh my God! Yeah, from, I didn't think about that. Um, and not only that, like, so Twilight Zone was a show that would come on in the afternoon on Saturday, maybe Sunday. So hopefully you'd get to catch it throughout the year, but you don't get to see it. But Gomer Pyle was on every single day. And then in the summer, if you get up and you don't have to go to school, there's a channel that definitely was playing. Uh, I would definitely see Gomer Pyle probably every day. I had like a run of like Leave it to Beaver, Dennis and Menace, Gomer Pyle, and, uh, you know, Andy Griffith showed like I've a couple seen, summers. You see, it's a little different. Andy Griffith they showed on Saturdays. Gomer Pyle, I know I have seen but not a lot, uh, but enough to know who you're talking about with Sutton. And then Leave it to Beaver is just inexplicable. Uh, they didn't show it. They oh. did not show it. No one can believe it for someone who watches as much TV as I. I've never seen an Whoa. episode of wow. Leave it to Beaver. I know, I know. I did see, like, in the 80s, the TV movie, like, Still the Beaver. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. Which was such a fucking weird movie because... It's real sad, it would have, right? It would have flashbacks. To the yeah. original series, the flashbacks were in black and white, and like, okay, I can suspend my disbelief. I'm watching this in color, and the flashback is to black and white, but I'll accept that as the convention of the flashback as opposed to a necessity because it was filmed in black and white. But then there would be a laugh track in the flashbacks, oh, and it would totally ruin the moment. That is bizarre. I don't remember. I remember. Yeah. I remember they did like in the '80s. They did like a made-for-TV movie. Yep, and then that's what I'm they, talking about. Then they turned it. They did a syndicated show. Yep, still like the beaver. Still the beaver. I don't remember the flashbacks. That's crazy. The still uh, the flashbacks were in the movie, but uh, uh, and then the only other Barbara Billingsley I know besides that is Airplane. What I do enjoy yeah. about I really Anne Sterling wrote a book about Twilight Zone and her dad that is really uh, really really fun, and and she seems like a lovely person, and her father seems like a lovely man, and I and she's even more of a lovely person because. Potentially, she's agreed to do the show, Ooh. but and it's not a trash talking book. It's a lovely book where she has lovely things to say about so many people. And out of nowhere, in the book, she goes, "Barbara Billingsley came over to dinner once. She was not nice." <laughs> <laughs> 
It's wow. Like, she pissed her off at like as an eight year old girl, and she still hasn't forgiven her. Wow. And she drags her in the book. I remember. Uh, I remember an old episode. I don't know why this sticks sticks with me or stuck with me. An old old episode of of Oprah, like from the eighties, where Oprah had on like. Barbara Billingsley and I don't know, like Donna Duke and like uh, uh, can't remember her name right now. Mar- Marine, the the lady uh, uh, Brady Bunch mom, Brady Bunch mom. What was the theme of the show? People you masturbated to in syndication. I think so it was all it was all moms. <laughs> it was all like like classic sitcom moms. And oh, I, they, guess, I guess I guess that's the way to clean it up for an Oprah audience. <laughs> Yeah, that's that was the the way they queued up for the Oprah audience. I think the males, yeah, we we all watched right. it for a different reason. But they did a weird. She did a weird thing. It was like, and it was kind of like, didn't we all kind of like whitewash and uh, the culture of things weren't as nice back then in the fifties? And all the sitcom moms were like, oh yeah, this was like the most saccharine version. And but Barbara Billingsley was the one who was like, no, this is how it really was. And everyone like, I remember Oprah like disagreeing with her on the show and it kind of was this weird momentary standoff of like no you're wrong things were not like this in the 50s and barbara billingsley looking kind of confused and they're like oh yeah let's move on right yeah well i guess if you were a wealthy white woman in the 50s i'm sure that was a pretty good life um so so and of course the ending is uh ultimately because you can give away the ending. There's, there's, you cannot claim spoiler alert in uh, after the show's been off for 60 years. Also, the, the spoilers don't matter. There's nothing you can spoil about a Twilight Zone episode yeah. that ruins it. It's still worth watching. That's why I watched it again today and enjoyed it. I know what happens at the end. Suddenly, the dummy and the ventriloquist switch places. Switch places. Or they're starting is- to. They're kind of mid-transformation, I think, at this point. It's it, that was my take on it. That when you looked at the dummy, it didn't going. quite look like it didn't quite look like Willie. It did, but I guess I guess uh, uh, Jerry, I mean. uh, Cliff Robertson didn't quite look like the dummy yet. I felt okay. Like well, I, but I, well of... I was doing some research. That's fine, and we're going to talk about that. But I was doing some research. I think they wanted it to. That's the best. thing. Uh, okay. <laughs> because you know why they started with a real dummy and then fucked with it to make it look more like Cliff Robertson. Yeah. That's what I learned. But um. All right, so let's get to the basic. Well, um, no, you know what? Let's do the Twilight Zone quiz. All right. All right. Um, Oh, and I forgot to do my program note. All right, before we do the Twilight Zone quiz, here's the program note. Um, To any good people who are listening to this on SoundCloud, I'm going to do the Twilight Zone quiz, and then I'm going to end the episode on SoundCloud. I'm going to make the SoundCloud episodes much shorter than I've been making them because I've Basically wanted to give you guys a taste of like two-thirds of an episode uh, for free. Uh, going forward, it's going to be about a one-third for free. In fact, the Widziak episode was basically missing half the episode. You just didn't know because it's an hour and a half full episode. Um, but God bless you, and I hope you go to my Patreon to hear the whole thing. But here's the Twilight Zone quiz. And now, the Twilight Zone quiz. Willie is called many things by many people in this episode. Which is not something? Which of the following four things is not something Willie is called in this episode? Is it A, a block of wood, B, a brash stick of kindling, C, a pine-skinned pipsqueak, D, a fugitive from a fireplace? One of those is not from the episode. 
Oh, it's got to be. Would you like me to say it again? I'll go again. It's got to be one of the last two. Tell me what the last two were. Okay. You are correct so far. I'll let you do the process elimination. He is called a block of wood. Uh, I forget. Either either Cliff Robertson or, or Frank Sutton calls him that. A brash stick of kindling, Rod Serling calls him in the beginning. So now you've limited down. Is he called – well, which of these is he not called in the episode? C, a a pine-skinned pipsqueak, or D, a fugitive from a fireplace? I'm going to say fugitive from fireplace. I made a pine-skinned pipsqueak. Damn it. Fugitive from a fireplace is real. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, Cliff Robertson calls him that. Somebody does. Pretty sure it's Cliff Robertson. So, yes. And that's something I wanted to say. You, you talked about Rod Serling like, and how cool he was. Rod Serling is at his absolute, like, over-the-top, like, almost self-parody Rod Serlingness in this episode. He is so friggin' cool sitting at that table in the nightclub smoking. He's got this, like, I just got a laid posture. And his verbiage is insane. Like, I love, I love how he plays with words. I love that he loves words too much and he gets carried away. But this one is the most ridiculous intro ever and i've i've got to i've got to give it to the audience you're watching a ventriloquist named jerry etherson a voice thrower par excellence all right you're already <laughs> off the rails rod par excellence come on all right a voice thrower par excellence his alter ego sitting atop his lap is a brash stick of kindling with the sobriquet willie sobriquet i had to look that up Nickname. Sobriquet means nickname. A brash stick of kindling with the sobriquet Willie. In a moment, Mr. Etherson... Oh, shit! No wonder you were confused. I should have put this in there, too. Mr. Etherson and his naughty pine partner... No wonder you were confused by pine-skinned pipsqueak. ...will be booked into one of the -the out-of-way bistros, that small, dark, intimate place known as... The Twilight Zone. Zone. So uh, that's amazing. So why did you pick this episode? Well, I think – so I I don't – they still do the Twilight Zone marathon on New Year's Day. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I don't know that I watched it this New Year's because I cut the cable recently. Maybe it was the year before. But this one came on again and it kind of hit me in that it hits a a sweet spot for me in that it – has nightclub stuff and behind the scenes nightclub stuff because I love how shitty the back room is and I love how I like I love all the I love anything that takes you behind the curtain of a club or after spending a you know a lot a most big chunk of my life as a touring and and doing stuff in clubs and both comedy and music and stuff like everything behind every curtain is kind of shitty and, uh, and I love how awful the dressing room is and just him running. There's always, you know, all the concrete stuff that he's running around when he's freaking out backwards. Like that's behind all that. St- they just nail all of it. So they well. did nail it. And I also like what, uh, not that I, you know, I've played in some clubs and stuff, both in comedy and in music, not like, a professional touring musician uh like you but enough to know that yes that felt absolutely real i also like that the manager said guess what kansas city is the same club as la is the same club as sioux city and and like in some ways it's like like the hollywood bowl no is not like 
chuckle hut at, at like in Sioux City. But the kind of clubs he's playing, they probably are all the same. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I've been fortunate enough to have a handful of experience of, of even in kind of big venues. It's always been me opening up for people in really big mm-hmm. venues and sometimes even like big tours and big venues. It's all that same shit behind that like even if it's as nice as the venue is out front it's all i'm telling you it is always the same in the back it is sad and kind of quiet and shitty and you're walking through corridors with pipes and stuff laying around and dust um and so so i that but i'm also nostalgic to see like you know not nostalgic but uh i just have a big interest in what the ring-a-ding-ding nightclub stuff was like I, I love anything with, with that era stuff uh, in it. So that's a sweet spot as well. And then just, uh, man, they they capture someone going nuts in such a fantastic way. Um, yeah. They, like, it's, I think it's kind of hard to show somebody going crazy and hearing voices in their head and not have you kind of roll your eyes at it. That's right. And, in fact, Cliff Robertson, you know, uh, I don't think he was doing ventriloquism, but he was doing the dummy voices. Yeah. Um, and that scream, that cackle that he does is the most terrifying thing. He's doing it, really? The... I had no idea about that. Well, uh, according to either Wiki or I, – I was listening closely, and I thought it could be him. And then I don't know if it was Wiki or IMDP, IMDB. I think it was – said credited him with the voices of Willie and Goofy Goggles. Goofy Goggles. <laughs> so 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 that scream that <laughs> is yeah. is terrifying and the part of it that scares me the most um the part that tears my guts out the most in the episode is that he's hitting on the showgirl not because he's being lascivious but he just doesn't want to be alone. He does yeah. not want to be alone. He wa- he's desperate for human contact. And by the way, we see a showgirl kind of look at him yeah. in the very first scene, like, oh, he's a kind of cute guy who's making an audience laugh. Like, he doesn't seem like a lech. He's an attractive person. He seems like a nice guy. Women seem interested in him, and he, he doesn't even look at the showgirls. He's got his own stuff. He's not like, oh, yeah. And so then when he's actually talking to one, he still doesn't seem interested in her sexually but doesn't want to be alone. But because he's not acting right, because he's scared now, because he's afraid he's insane, she picks up on this bad mojo vibe, and and he, she doesn't want to be with him. It's not because she's a, he's viewed as like a, a wolf. It's because he doesn't. He seems so unsettled. So she backs away, and he she leaves him alone. And when she leaves him alone, Willie cackles like takes joy in the fact of like the not just the ultimate cock block, but like it seems that the only thing that can help him is human kindness and human interaction and Willie's fucked that up for him too. Yeah. So that's the part that, that it is that stuck with me the and most. And again, that cackle is it's really amazing. It's like a Mark Hamill Joker level laugh. And laughing yeah. laughing, even fake laughing, is I, I can't really do it. Like I've acted and stuff and I'm like, oh anytime I have to fake laugh at something, it always ugh. But and even oh it's so good. It's so he, he he really he does nail it, and also, what's really impressive. It's really, uh, you know, I've always liked Cliff Robertson, probably because I liked Charlie as a kid, uh, that Flowers for Algernon movie. Yeah. But, um, and of course, he's Uncle Ben in the Tobey Maguire Peter uh, Spider Man, so he he hits all the right heartstrings for me. But he seems very scared. He does convey fear really well. So well. And, 
and, and he's scared of himself. He's scared of the voices he's doing. So that's even better. He's so he's covered in sweat too from the first moment you see him. That's like they this this episode is really great on close-ups and Cliff Robertson is really able to sell everything he does and one of the most effective things because there's not a lot of like effect stuff like the dummy yeah. doesn't really do move around he much. Once. He winks. You know, like that's the scariest thing. It moves when, when purportedly no one is holding him. He winks at him, right? Yeah. That's the, the most supernatural thing we see. Well, I guess at the end he talks to him. At the very end he talks well, yeah, yeah. the mouse a little bit off. But that's good. You're, 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 it's a good point. But, but you know, let me ask you this because this, you're the perfect person to ask this question. Look, um, I was an English major guy. I've written some novels. And as far as what I like in, in literature, what I like in movies, I love close reading. I love symbolism. I love metaphor. I love peeling back layers. And Twilight Zone offers that. But because I saw these things as a child, the way they went into my mind as a child often stays. And I don't even think about reading them psychologically, symbolically, metaphorically, because I I read them literally as a child. So, like, for example... Uh, the one with Robert Redford, right? Uh, nothing, to, uh, nothing in the dark. Where it, the the pretense is a woman is holed up, an old woman is holed up in her apartment because she doesn't want to go outside because she knows what Mister Death looks like, and if she goes outside, Mister Death can touch her and she'll die. That's what happens. And until recently, that's what that episode was about to me. Yeah. Until Martha Kelly was on, she's like, so you know, this is a story about a woman who's really just afraid of death, so she's afraid of going outside. And I was like, oh. Yeah, I guess it is. I just thought she wanted to stay away from Mr. Death, who she could see. Uh, so so now we're on to this episode. As a kid, I read it literally. This dummy is evil, this dummy is alive, and this dummy did find a way to supernaturally take over his body. And it wasn't until really today when I saw it for the – 40th time, 30th time, I don't know, that I first even allowed myself to say, well, wait a second. Is this all in his head? Is he just crazy or drunk? Or, you know, what? did you ever have that uh, reaction? Did you ever think that? Or that? Yeah, I, I, I wondered about that because they set up, um, I mean, not until later. Like it was, I mean, this episode stuck in my head from watching it either a couple New Year's ago. And I don't think I ever noticed that as a kid either. I thought, yeah, it was just about a magical supernatural dummy that is right. doing its thing to take over. But I guess the last time I saw it, and then watching it again recently for this, I there's there's a little preamble up front about how he's taken a month off, and he's they he gets into talking about seeing psychologists and uh, talks about schizophrenia. And it's real. It's real brief up in the beginning when uh, Frank Sutton's talking to him, and then Frank Sutton's also talking to him a lot about his drinking and about right. like you need to stay off the hooch. So I don't, I, you know, it's a weird thing. And the two go hand in hand. I'm sure Rod Serling probably surely knew that as well. That and I wonder now if it's all just a metaphor for. I mean, at the the end implies not that it. You know, maybe that's just the Twilight Zone. This that we got to tie this up in a. Uh, I don't know. I don't know because here's the thing that did it for me. First of all, right, the manager talks a lot about it's the hooch, it's the drink, 
if you stop the drink, you'll stop with the bad nightmares. Okay. And he says, no, it's the other way around. I drink because I'm living in this nightmare. Fine. The other thing I noticed that was interesting is that the club owner wants Cliff Robertson to mix with trade mm-hmm. and try to, to be cutesy with the patrons after the show. And he says it's a psychological thing, which is a weird sentence. Yeah. Talking to dummies makes them thirsty. Now, I don't – it's just – it's kind of like there's something about the lifestyle yeah. that, like, drives you to drink, which was a, kind of a weird line that stuck out with me. But more importantly, he says to him at the end, how can you – the just before the transformation, how can you be real? You're just a block of wood, I think is what he says. And he says, you made me real. You poured words into me. You brought me to life. And when I heard it this time, I heard that line in a way I never heard before. When he said, like, you made me real. So your neurosis, your pathology, you're the one making me real. And so today was the first time I ever even considered that he didn't actually transform. I don't know. Yeah, I never, man. The, the other, the, I will say the other thought that I had, whether it's the end is real or not, was just the fact that, and I'm sure, you know, Rod Sterling maybe had experience, obviously, in show business and in clubs and stuff, but there is something about being a touring musician and playing those clubs with those shitty back rooms where they kind of do show how kind of, you know, that even the girls that come backstage and kind of hit on them, they're not... They're not anybody meaningful. It's like this weird, yeah, there's a kind of, that that whole lifestyle, that the drinking, that, that having to, to, you know, go out and schmooze with the patrons, that it drives you insane. Like, yeah. And as somebody who's spent a lot of time in those places, it does kind of drive you insane. I haven't, I don't have any, any living uh, puppets that are talking to me yet, but it, it could happen. And I've seen it more or less happen to people. I've seen that lifestyle kind of grind up and chew people up it 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 doesn't speak um you'd be hard yeah i mean it's funny because rod serling is definitely show people right i yeah. mean he was show people but it, it never seems great it never seems great it's not it's not nicely portrayed in the in the twilight zone it doesn't seem like a kind, forgiving way to earn a living. Whether it's the 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 woman, the 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 stripper from uh, Twenty Two, where uh, she keeps thinking about the the nurse, room for one more, and then that's the plain premonition. She yeah. doesn't seem to have a great life, and uh, certainly uh, uh, Jack Klugman as the alcoholic uh, trumpet player. Yeah, he doesn't have the greatest life. Uh, it, it seems like he's very aware of how precarious. It is, but let me let me um, let me uh, before we get to the Twilight Zone game, uh, let me ask you this: In rewatching the episode, is uh, is there anything you didn't like? Anything you'd do differently and be like, "What's what's up with that?" Um, I was just a little unsure of why Goofy Goggles was there. It was just that kind of like thing of like, "Ah, we got to write this in real quick." Oh, I got this other thing here. And then I also happen to have this giant letter E that I can pull out <laughs> on stage with it. It is – I got to tell you, it's not weird to me that that they address that because you're like – I would think, well, if he's really that great a ventriloquist, he doesn't need this friggin' dummy. He can do a new dummy. Yeah. But it is a little bit weird 
that he not only has another dummy, he has another voice for it. He can write jokes almost spontaneously for the act, and he has a prop. <laughs> yeah, and and the other thing too is like his set with goofy goggles was like two like a like. 30 seconds worth of material and then a song and then he's off. And it's like, that was your whole second show. That was, that was, that was a, was that a tight one that you did up there? The only thing. And then he's just the kind of like all exhausted at the end of the night. Like, ah, I mean, tough, tough Mixed job. With the trade. Yeah. I just, I just told 60 seconds yeah. of jokes. I'm an artist. Yeah, I think his and yeah his uh, his Willie set too. Like I think we did we do we see him intro on that? We I felt like we maybe come in halfway through his. No, set. No, no, no. We come we come in halfway. In fairness, like he could have been killing him dead for uh, forty minutes before uh, Rod brings us into that world. Yeah, yeah. But um, and the other thing is, there are some episodes where the best things about them are the intros and the outros, uh, and there are some episodes. Where um, um, I think that's like the exact opposite. It's like the worst thing about them. And like where I think that the outro undersells the weight of the episode. And um, the best one I would say about that is um, Eye of the Beholder. Because Eye of the Beholder, which everyone agrees is one of the greatest episodes. Of TV, I would argue. Yes. Well, no, no, no. It, well, it's not my favorite Twilight Zone, but it's definitely in the top five. Yeah. Um, and the the voice, by the way, because I really there's something wrong with me. Um, and but because I've seen the Twilight Zone so often, what I will do is I'll just listen to the audio, and uh, I have a uh, a waterproof speaker, and I'll just like take a shower and listen to the audio. Yeah. <laughs> this is a disturbing amount of information about me, but um, I have the Beholder which is famous for being such a visually shocking episode, I would really encourage anyone to just listen to the audio it, because the vocal performance of the bandaged woman, because it's just a vocal performance, it's not even her in the in the thing. It's, uh, what's her face from Beverly Hillbillies, the hot blonde chick, just forgot her name, Donna something. Yeah. Sorry, whatever. Kelly Mae Clampett. Uh, right, Clampett. So uh, is amazing. It's one of the most brilliant performances and it's all just the inflection of her voice. But the point is you watch that episode. It's clearly about fascism. It's about kicking out oddballs. It's about uniformity. It's about making society homogenous. And there's all these incredibly powerful lines, like who is the state to issue this edict? And then the, it's almost like that got too political. So sometimes like Rod will back off in the, in the outro and just be like, Oh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Isn't it ironic? You thought they were pretty, but they looked like pigs. I'm like, Oh, Rod, you know, the episodes about so much more than that. Well, and I wonder if, if he had to do that. Like, I wonder right. if there was a level of like, I gotta, cause didn't he, I mean like part of the twilight zone was frustration at him not being able to tell Absolutely. stories like that. So he's like, no, this is sci-fi. This is all sci-fi. Right, no, no. And, like, and like whenever something was like, whenever something was like apocalyptic, I really feel like his hand must've been forced because there's always like this weird ham fisted intro, not the future that must happen, but could happen, yeah. you know, like offered for your consideration. But the closing narration is <laughs> in this episode is, What's known in the parlance of our times, yes. What's known in the parlance of our times is the old switcheroo. (laughs) Yeah, 
Like, you know, Rod, not even in 64 were people going, it's the old switcheroo. It's the parlance of our times. I'm forced to say this. It's I d- like... There was, but my actual favorite uh, parlance of the times in this episode was uh, when uh, Cliff Robertson goes up to one of the the, the can can girls and goes a ring a ding ding ding. <laughs> that's, his, <laughs> that's him hitting on her. A ring a ding ding. <laughs> oh God! Um, by the way, Rod Sterling, not for nothing. He may have been some. Five foot four dude from Binghamton, New York, by all accounts, basically had sex with all of Antioch College. Oh, He's wow. like an incredible ladies' man. And his wife, who the woman who became his wife, like she was even like reticent to date him because she'd known he'd like bag the entire <laughs> campus. So, you know, an inspiration to me as a five foot seven uh, New York Jew. Um, what, what I would, I, man, the game he must have spit must have been amazing. Like, well, just, I mean, he really yeah, I, is. I can see a woman being wooed by whatever, like, the tone of voice that he was back right. in that place. His brother wrote about, I, I'm forgetting the quote, he had an older brother, um, where he talked about just like the level of confidence. And, and he said, my brother wasn't arrogant. It was just extreme confidence. There's a difference. Um, and uh, and I think there is a difference. And and I, I really have been reading a lot about Rod Serling. And I, I really – he really did – I mean who knows? No one knows anyone. But he really seems like a, a decent man. Yeah. And uh, um, he told a story that as a little child because he wouldn't shut the fuck up. He was so loquacious. They were taking like a two-hour car ride. And they all had a bet, his mother, his father, and his older brother, let's not talk in the car and see if Rod doesn't notice and speaks nonstop for two hours. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're on to the Twilight Zone game. This is a segment which I'm not sure anyone likes. Um, I like to believe that if Rod were here today uh, – He'd like this segment because I think he's someone who liked just story writing ideas and uh, structure, plot structure. But the game is you and I pick a famous movie. We describe it to each other in a sentence and tell each other what the movie is. And then we have to resolve it in the Twilight Zone universe. Change the ending. How would this premise end if it were a Twilight Zone? And now, time to Twilight Zone, a movie. You can go first and give or receive whatever you prefer. Um, I, I will, I will receive first. Okay, so because I am a dick, <laughs> you accidentally told me what your original premise was. Yeah, uh, and so I'm just going to flip it right back at you. <laughs> the premise is just uh, Sheriff Brody. Uh, must um, battle a corrupt administration who wants to keep beaches open while he tries to close them and kill a shark shark that's eating people. Well, I think we would find out. I mean, it would all be essentially same, the same until the end when we find out that the we are on a shark-based planet and that the shark <laughs> was trying to defend 
its family from foreign invaders that came in in space, you know, spaceships that landed on the water and were attempting to destroy the water planet where these sharks were just trying to live peacefully the entire time. So the the town of Amity is encroaching. It's yeah, it's encroaching. Is a is a is an invading colony on shark colony. world. Yeah. Oh, that's fucking fantastic, Mike. Yeah. That's really good. That's one of the best we've ever had on this show. That's going to be hard to beat. And when I say beat, it's voted on by members of my patron, Patreon who never fucking vote on it. So, I, you know, I don't think you can either win. But it, still, it's going to be hard to beat. So uh, lay your movie on me. Young Bruce Wayne's parents are killed by a, a random... <laughs> Wait, which Batman is? Which, which Batman are we doing? Oh, the good one, Val Kilmer. Uh, no. Wait, was this Batman Forever? <laughs> <laughs> Which Batman is I this? Was, I, was, I was thinking uh, Michael Keaton. Uh, oh, the original yeah, Batman. Yeah, 80. Shit. Okay, okay uh, go. so go ahead. Give me the synopsis. So, yeah, uh, Bruce Wayne's parents are killed by, killed by uh, a, a random, uh, a seemingly random uh, mugger. Turns out that mugger goes on to become a crime lord, damaged, disfigured by... By a giant swirling green vat of stuff, and and Bruce Wayne grows to try and fight this villain under the form of a black cow, and he's known as Batman. Well, it was important that I specify because it, first yeah. of all, when I say the original Batman, no, it's not the original Batman. I just meant Tim Burton as opposed to the uh, 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 Christian Bale. Why am I? Blanking on my favorite filmmakers. Yeah, Nolan. holy shit. Yeah, and I, I love those Batmans, and I, I, love, uh, I love him as a filmmaker most of the time, although Dunkirk was fucking awful! Um, I sorry. to ask you more about why you hated that, but this is a, that's probably a different uh, podcast. Well, <clears throat> briefly, it's because it, it didn't have a protagonist, and because it had no protagonist, it had no arc or rising action or structure and knowing that it had no rising arc had to tell the story out of time uh to switch the time sequence at different periods just to put the more exciting shit towards the middle to create a denouement and then the fucking uh ending made no fucking sense because i have no fucking idea why he didn't crash his plane or drop it into the ocean or parachute or any fucking thing uh and also i don't think he's the figure that should have stood for the whole movie is the de facto protagonist in a movie that didn't have one that's why I didn't like Dunkirk. Uh, also, I was bored the entire time, and Kenneth Branagh sucks in everything. <laughs> Except I, for the Harry Potter movie where he played himself, which is an untalented charade of a man who's obsessed with himself. I okay. will counter that Harry Styles from One Direction was in that movie. <laughs> And he was more interesting <laughs> than fucking uh, – what's his face? Is, uh, Bane's character, who's a great actor who I love, but the character I didn't care for. I, All right. Yeah, yeah no, sorry. I was going to no, – no. that movie – I will say that's the second Nolan movie that there's a weird thing that's happened because I went and saw – because I'm such a – so excited about Dark Knight Rises that I went and saw the um, the little preview before whatever Mission Impossible movie. And then I went and saw Dunkirk in 70 millimeter, and both of those movies – had some of the worst editing, sound editing I've ever heard, both with Tom Hardy's voice. Like, and it, we, I, could, I didn't understand a thing he said on either one. They corrected it 
in the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, they redid. They redid it in Dark Knight. And yeah. I, I'm told that you can understand him if you didn't go see the 70 millimeter uh, Dunkirk, which was like they have it at one theater in all of Austin, and uh, and I haven't rewatched it. I didn't. I love. I, I love Tom Hardy. But I didn't love it, and I don't plan on rewatching it ever. Like, well, look, just 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 for clarity, I love uh, Memento. I love uh, Interstellar. I love the Batman movies, although Bat, you know, Dark Knight Rises has some. Has some problems, yeah. but I still love aspects of it. Uh, I'm a huge Nolan fan, and in fact, Nolan is like the guy who I would love to adapt my trilogy of books. So, which I'm kind of, <laughs> I, I I don't think it's happening. So I don't think I've ruined my chances yeah. by shitting on Dunkirk. But uh, all right, so now what, what do we do? Oh, Batman. Oh, okay. I, I I haven't been thinking about this yet. Hold on. Okay. Uh, so how do I Twilight Zone this up? Uh, as you know, uh, Bruce Wayne's father was an incredible uber billionaire, the richest man in Gotham, but also a good, kindly man. Um, but what we find out in the ending is that he's also a fucking sociopath because it was so important to him to raise his son to be a do-gooder in stomping out crime that he actually staged his entire murder oh. uh, to, to, to help form his child into this ultimate assassin and has been in hiding for 30 years or 25 years or whatever the time is. And at the end of the movie, he comes out and goes, oh, I'm not dead. And the Joker's just a friend of mine playing, you know, card playing buddies or my chief financial officer. Uh, good job, Bruce. I'm very proud of you, son. Wow. Is Bruce broken by this? Uh, well, uh, I, I would be if I wrote it, but, uh, yeah. I would say, I would say no. And I would also say it's a bad Twilight Zone, but <laughs> I, I do think it is correct. Like a bad Twilight Zone. Yeah. And there are such things as bad Twilight Zones. Oh, for sure. Well, so, you know, as long as you now wait, I should tell the, uh, listeners at home. Um, so there's a rule on, uh, on this podcast, which is if you go on once, first time is usually so far, they've all been good episodes. We've done – well, that's not true. All but one has been good episodes. But the rule in the show is if you come on and do a good episode, you have to come back and do a shitty episode. What I propose to Mike, and I would love for him to come back, is to do the shittiest episode that makes sense with the dummy, which would be Caesar and Me, which has the same dummy same in it. Same dummy. It is the same dummy. I actually went and – I just I wanted to, I didn't watch the whole Caesar episode, but I was like I wanted to see if it was the same dummy, and yes, it was same, same dummy. In fact, if you Google this episode or wiki it, it goes not to be confused yeah. with Caesar and me. Yeah, which they go, which has a similar plot. It's like it's not a similar plot. I mean, I guess it is if you have sentient dummy as as the only factor. Yes, in that way, it's similar. But one is. Dealing with madness and alcoholism and evil in show business. And the other one is, what if some random asshole and a dummy rob banks? Yeah. <laughs> and the the Caesar episode is, it's is it comical? Is it a comic one? I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it's 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 such a fucking abortion of an episode. But I don't want to talk about it now because I hope you'll come yeah, back. Yeah, I would love to. That would be awesome. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that. We'll save that for then. But. Um, um, <clears throat> we are coming to the end of this episode, but I want to ask you, this is a hard question to answer because as you said early on, for this has become such a trope 
you know, the evil ventriloquist dummy is a trope from like goosebumps and magic and everything else. But so, so if you were to, they did, they, there was a Batman villain that I think came from the animated series where it was, uh, the, the guy running the dummies, this nebbish little dude, but then, uh, it's Scarface. He's like Al Capone is the dummy and he calls all the shots and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so, uh, uh, so yes, if you redid it today, it wouldn't be fresh. You faced that challenge, but forget about that for a second. Um, um, is there anything about this episode that wouldn't work today? Anything you'd need to change? You know, I think it would be hard to, there'd be a lot that would be hard to nail, right? Like now, even like those Dutch, whenever he's going insane, everything goes to a stilted, I think they call it Dutch angles where the camera is, you know, diagonal and that Mm. that's a trope in itself. But I don't know that I ever saw that. I don't, I mean, sure. Somebody did it before 19, is it 64? This came out season three. So I think 62 or three. Okay. I'm sure somebody did it before, but it's a long time that we spend in diagonal. So that would be, and I think like you re- you really have to get the right actors. Like Cliff Robertson really nails it. He looks he looks mentally ill. Like he like mentally ill in the way that it's not overdone, where it looks like he's stressed out. And you know, even when you don't see his hands, you kind of think that he's clenching his fists and just really trying to deal with it. And I think that Frank Sutton, which is again Frank Sutton, it's I've spent so I had spent so many hours watching him as. Sergeant Carter, who's this over-the-top blowhard with a crew cut. So it's, it's, it is always kind of weird to see him walk in. But he does this really sensitive thing in that he's not yelling at him. He's his friend. He's kind of trying to stage an intervention. And eventually, yeah. by the, you know, by the, towards the end of the episode, he has to go, I can't, you know, you're just, I can't work with you. Uh, you know, you're, you're a good guy, but I, I just I can't do this anymore. And it's really sad. So as long as you're hitting... Getting actors that can both nail the kind of ambiguity of that and the sadness, uh, I think it can be done, but it's tough. A lot of the, again, a lot of the tropes are so. But that's the, but those are the challenges, which is not a fair thing to hold against the episode. It's such a great episode. It's so iconic. Everything about it is so perfect that it's been copied so much that it would be hard to make fresh. But I really can't think of anything you'd really, other than that big letter E and the goofy yeah. goggles thing that you'd really have to change. Yeah. I don't, I was um, trying to think like what the, cause they kind of posit that when, when Frank Sutton is talking to like the club owner, they kind of posit that, which I didn't know, but I guess always ventriloquists have seen kind of hacky. It's like, Oh my God, that re- I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm watching his act and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this act sucks. Yeah. Um, because, well, first of all, I, it's not like I can say, why can't he be like today's great ventriloquist, yeah, yeah. right? Because like I hate Jeff Dunham. Yeah. But the point is Jeff Dunham would have had the same act apparently and been just as shitty yeah. 40 years earlier. Yeah, it's like no one ever liked ventriloquism. Then why did it ever get started? But um... Right, but that's – see, Yahweh, but this is – especially for you who likes the showbiz angle. Yeah. He does well. The audience likes it. And the theater owner is like, this shit. Yeah. And that, that is certainly something that can be true in the club scene, especially in comedy. More so, I think, than, than music. I mean, I have seen some of the shittiest fucking clapter, 
glad handing, yeah. easy laugh, garbage comics kill. Oh yeah, for sure. Because the audience is drunk and they're a bunch of friggin' idiots. Who are they? And it's the job of the comic to make the audience laugh. So good job for you, comic. You made the people laugh. It's your job. But no one's mistaking it for quality. Yeah. And that's an that actually is a great thing about uh about the episode. Yeah. I don't know that there's a modern equivalent. I mean, I'm I'm just guessing that there were more ventriloquist acts back then. I don't know if there's a modern equivalent to something that is apparently something that exists a bunch that is going on in every club, you know, every other club, but as equally reviled and hacky. Unless I don't know, maybe well, like blue guess... collar comedy. If you were a blue collar comic, to make a modern version of this, like if you were a blue collar comic with a catchphrase and the catchphrase somehow came to life and tried to kill you or change you or something. Well, I guess the equivalent, I guess now, I mean, I mean, there's still prop comics. In fact, we can talk all the shit we want about Jeff Dunham and believe me, I I'm going to, you know, he's one of the most successful fucking guys who ever fucking lived. He's made a shit ton. He's one of the biggest acts, but just proves people are stupid, especially when drinking. But I guess the modern equivalent of the ventriloquist act is almost like the prop comic. Yeah. You know, like Carrot Top. Yeah. But uh, it probably wouldn't be as good if his, like, oversized, you know, finger or giant mustache or whatever the hell. I don't know what props he has. I don't know. I haven't seen Carrot Top since the 90s. Yeah, I don't know. They'd probably probably come off kind of goofy because there's something inherently frightening about uh, the way that the way that a... uh, the way that a, a dummy looks like you and it's weird if you're ever in like an antique store occasionally you will come across a old dummy that kind of looks like willie and it is so creepy well as long as as long as we're, we're right i agree with you and as long as that we're running out the hour let me tell you all the thing little things i learned one i learned that david copperfield owns the dummy oh. and the willie one he purchased it which sounds about right uh, and why it would probably be terrifying to be in his home regardless um uh the other thing is you know, you said that, you know, Cliff Robertson doesn't deserve this fate. So I, at the beginning of the show, and I said, let's get back to that. He doesn't. He really does seem like a good guy. I mean, and if, he, if this is an episode about drug, like alcoholism or mental illness, okay, then that's what it's about. But if you read it literally, then this guy got fucked. A seemingly good man lost, right? Yeah. And that's disturbing and a rarity in the Twilight Zone. Common in Black Mirror, a rarity in the Twilight Zone. But the other one that's like that is Living Doll. Because that doll's going to kill the whole family. Even if you think Telly Savalas is a piece of shit abusive dad. And by the way, I think he gets a bum rap. I don't think he's as bad as people make him seem. The mother is next. That doll's going to kill the fucking mom next. Yeah. Because the last thing she says is, Mom, talky Tina, and you better be nice to me. And the mom's like totally cool. So that's also a possessed, inanimate object has a bummer of an ending so then i'm like oh is there another one and then i kind of thought of after hours the one where mannequins come oh, alive yeah, that one really fucked with me i think that one really fucked yeah. with me. it's a great episode because also uh, not that one's shot on video right no it's not 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 okay. on video so the video not one's on always video. unhinged me a little bit too especially when you're yeah, watching uh, like like film for a while but yeah you're right the what's mannequins. the one what's the one with um billy moomy and uh the grandma who wants the her grandson to die so she can keep Ooh, him company in heaven yeah that one's that one's on video yeah and that one really upset me that one's on video the audio, but then night- i think something about the video ones that's also scary that's not just the flat weird 
know, black and white video, which you don't see very often. It did, definitely didn't see very often. But the audio is kind of different on those video ones. Everything is about is about shittier, and that's why when you have a good video episode, which is rare, it stands out because it's really a testament to everything else being great. And that would be for me would be Night of the Meek, Art Carney as the alcoholic Santa. Oh yeah, yeah. I love that one, and that's on video. And then the other one on some video that I like is Lateness of the Hour with uh, the chick from uh, Nan Stevens from uh, The Hitchhiker, but she's the daughter of a guy who's made all those robots, and it uh, turns out she's a robot. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's on video, too. But basically, all the other video episodes I friggin' hate. They're hard to watch. And are, are Especially any of those ones an hour long? Are any of those? Uh, I, I got, so I don't, I can't. It's certainly wrong to say that the ones that are on video are an hour long. That's not true. There are definitely half an hour episodes on video. What I don't know is, off the top of my head, I don't know if any of the hour long ones are on video. Because I've, at this point in my life, I've seen all the hour long ones, but I'm not an expert on it because those aren't on Netflix. Yeah. So the ones on Netflix, I've seen every episode a minimum of 10 times. But um, I don't want to keep you any longer. I've already gone an hour and 14 minutes. Holy crap. But, but you will come back, please, to Absolutely. do Caesar and me. love to. I don't and, get to and, talk and, and, like this with anyone. So this is right. Really I know. It's, it's so fun. It's so fun to talk about Twilight Zone. But the, Caesar and me will be even more fun because when I do the shitty episodes, what we do is the format goes out the window. We just watch it shortly before the episode and just keep like a little notes and just break down beat by beat and just talk about how much it sucks like chronologically yeah. that's the episode so so mara quint uh who did uh the lonely which is a great episode uh she came back and she did uh black leather jackets oh, yeah. which i think probably is the worst guys, episode. yeah and and you you compare the two episodes they're they're uh very different uh and Mara, if you're listening, uh, because you're not, because not even my girlfriend will listen to my podcast. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, but thank you, Mike. Um, uh, I really do. It was nice to get started. I've known, sort of semi-known you for years. Yeah, we've had friends, we've had friends in common for, this is the first time we've talked. <laughs> right. And uh, it really was great to uh, meet you and uh, go out and buy some, uh, I, I started watching, I started listening to all your music. I should have done it sooner, but in, 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 in preparation for the show, I, I, I started listening to a bunch of your stuff online, go out and buy a uh, riverboat gamblers and Draculus and, um, watch their videos online as I did. And, uh, thanks for coming by. Absolutely. Anytime. <laughs>